I think for me, the greatest thing is that we cannot give in to despair. People are walking around saying that they are in such despair. And it's like, you know, our ancestors, at least African-Americans, faced far worse than this. Come on now. And we need to find that indomitable spirit that fueled them to rise up out of working in cotton fields and working in the house, you know, which sometimes could be more dangerous than working in the fields. These multiplicities of oppression and abuse that people faced and still were able to see their way through to a new tomorrow. Today on the Janice Adams Show, scholar, poet, past president of Shaw University, and motivational strategist, Dr. Irma McLaurin. First, the news. With us on the show today, Dr. Irma McLaurin. For three decades, she has been changing the lives of adults and children through her work as a scholar and a top educational leader on the national scene. Among the positions she's held, President of Shaw University, Chief Diversity Officer at Teach for America, Senior Faculty, Federal Executive Institute, Program Officer at the Ford Foundation. Today, she heads her own management consulting firm, McLaurin Solutions. She's also a poet, award-winning columnist, and creator of the newly established Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. More on that later. In 2011, Irma gained national attention for her extraordinary leadership skills as president of Shaw University when a tornado ripped through the campus, tearing the roof off the student union. Miraculously, no one was killed, but thousands were devastated, all dependent upon her guidance through the storm. Here at the start of a new year, with some exhilarated, others cautiously optimistic, and many more devastated by the political storms unleashed by the president-elect's dangerous rhetoric, I began the conversation with this poet leader with this question. How is disappointment or grieving a catalyst for creativity? Wow, that's quite a question. Um, I think part of it is that poetry is about emotions and that what we try and capture, at least what I try and capture as a poet, is the range of experience. And often we are building upon life experiences or something, some event or some sound or some, some quote or something that stimulates our creativity. And certainly grieving has been part of my experience. Um, my mother passed away and my stepfather. And so I do have poems that, that speak to that, that I hope that by sharing those poems that I can help others find their way through that grieving uh, to something that is, is more uh, centering, something that is more powerful, which is that remembering people with love even as we grieve them. Is there a poem that you could read for us, something you would like us to hear? This one is entitled, We Miss You, Papa Brown, and it was uh, written after my stepfather's passing. With tears freshly minted and shining like new silver coins against our cheeks, we smile, 
point knowingly to the empty chair and console ourselves with the knowledge that you have gone fishing. We imagine you and God floating leisurely in a canoe somewhere on a clear Minnesota lake, anxious to catch walleye and perch. It is an easy rest for you, comfortable and well-earned after an arduous journey home. And when the fish don't bite, you break heaven's convention and make corn cob and grape wine, even daring to offer God a divine sip or two. Looking at that grief and the and energizing yourself around it, how does your writing do that for you? I think what 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 poetry for me does it is how I center myself. It is the way in which I find uh, a path through darkness, uh, through anxiety, through uh, anger, uh, through a feeling of loss. And what I tend to focus on are the positive aspects. So in this particular poem, I'm not so concerned with my grandfather, my my stepfather's death. I'm more concerned with us remembering what he brought into our lives. And I think as we look upon these next four years, we have to center ourselves in the fact that we are a country that has tremendous resilience. And I would say people who are feeling particularly marginalized have to remember that our ancestors have endured a lot worse. And that we will find a way through no way and that there is a path forward. And part of that path forward is remembering that one, we're not alone. Two, this is not the only time that we've faced tremendous opposition or the kind of incivility that is being uh, promoted or promulgated at this point. And so we just have to find strength that if we got through it, then we got through it, we will get through it again. Irma, when we began this interview, I asked you how disappointment and grieving fuel your creativity. I'm going to ask you how disappointment and grieving fuel your professionalism and your professional life. I would say that the ideas, the values of access, uh, equity, diversity, inclusiveness, have been part of my, my system, of my thought system as a, as a professional, as a leader. So no matter what my title is, I am always centering social justice and those ideas about how can we expand the opportunities for those who have been left on the margin as part of the work that I do. So in, in this sense, uh, if we look at who is Irma McLaurin as an as a person at the top rungs of ed- educational leadership? Can you remember a moment that made you say, this is the work you're going to do? That's a hard one. <laughs> I, I think there have probably been many moments uh, from the time that I was in high school. Um, and actually, even before then, I've had some unique opportunities where I've had a chance to see uh, African-Americans in leadership positions and being encouraged that because I had the way that I thought about things or could analyze things, my ability to speak clearly about issues or on certain topics, I was always encouraged to use that talent uh, on behalf of not just myself, but actually improving the outcomes or the, the opportunity 
is for my people, people who are African-American. And then as I grew much more global in my perspective, understanding and, and choosing that, in fact, to, to leverage as an opportunity for the underserved in general, whether they are here in the United States or whether they are in the Caribbean or in Africa, you know, these were opportunities that I could use the talents that I had. Now, here on the Janice Adams Show, we always refer to this being a, a show that is a conversation on race, but race with a difference. And that difference being that a kind of holistic view, not just of African-Americans, but of all races and and looking at this question of how we how we work within this yoke that we all seem to be tethered to called race. Um, so I would ask you in that context, why, when you mentioned your role, when you mentioned your role, your belief in service, and your firsts as a woman, as an African-American woman, as an African-American, why should people who are not women, not an African-American, not an African-American woman, take notice of the work you do. The work I do is rooted in resilience, which is overcoming adversity and not just taking things back to the way that they were, but actually new path forward. So I think what we offer, particularly those of us who have been challenged uh, in our life's journey uh, in, 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 a, in being able to manage those challenges and overcome those adversities, I think we offer tremendous inspiration and motivation to anyone. So that often when I speak, I'm often speaking to audiences, in fact, that are not African-American, that are generally not just women, but represent a plethora of people. And what I'm told, what people often come up to me and say, is that your life story encouraged me. You know, there's a real interesting way in which we have somehow taken the experiences of diverse people and made it seem as if they're not universal. Thank you. When in fact, I would say very much rooted in our struggles uh, to overcome oppression, to overcome marginalization, is the very that means to be human. Yes, yes. I, I had I had interjected just thank you when you said that because it is this enforced otherness that is the the root of to be trite about it but honest the root of so much of today's evils is in that enforced otherness and it's also what it takes away from those who feel the need to think in terms of otherness you know um so if if i look at this you um these lessons that you have learned the lessons that you've lived, the lessons that you're sharing, what does it tell us? What does it tell us to do the things that you've done for the reasons that you've done them and in ways that we can kind of interpret it and bring it back home for why it should matter to us as listeners and as individuals? Well, first, let me thank you for sort of uh, creating that kind of trinity around my work. It is 
my life is about lessons learned. It is about lessons lived and it is about lessons shared. So I really like the resonance of that. And I would say that what we gain from that is just sense of the ability of the human spirit to triumph. Uh, we have had many events in our histories of which we should be ashamed, events in which we've turned our backs on certain kinds of people. Obviously, the one that is most connected to my life experience is the experience of slavery. And we need to use that as an opportunity uh, for us to, to, to learn, to remember, and to make sure that we never pass this way again. We can then look at the internment of Japanese. And to me, that is the analogy that we're seeing with talking about registering Muslims, uh, that we are returning to a mentality that is about boxing people in, and it is about imposing on people our own fears about uh, what is happening in the world. And of course, the most, the most egregious is what we have done with Native people in this country. And the debates that are happening around the, the pipeline should not you know, have to do with the fact that we stole the land, uh, we then put Native people on reservations, and now we're trying to encroach on that very space, limited space that we've relegated them to. And to me, we are, at, we are at the crux of what I would call a sort of moral and political crisis. And I think we have to be mindful that there are lessons in our past that we can learn from that means this too shall pass, and that we try not to repeat the mistakes of the past. However, with the incoming administration, we are being steered almost down a psychopathic or sociopathic vein in that things that should matter that we've discussed, we've then found this top executive now of the nation enforcing for himself that it doesn't matter. You don't have to care about it. So how do we then make those lessons val valid and valued if we are excusing certain people from just basic decorum? Well, Dennis, you know, I, you know he's not the first leader <laughs> to, to, to have a position or perspective that seems to run counter to the very democratic values that we claim to hold, you know, as, as being the center of what this country is about. McCarthyism is an example, and that was promulgated uh, by top leadership. And so I think we just have to know that we've managed that at the end of the day, he is a leader, he has a limited term, and that people will continue to resist and will find ways to, to, to move outside of that limited perspective. I think for me, the greatest thing is that we cannot give in to despair. And that is what is surprising to me. People are walking around saying that they are in such despair. And it's like, you know, our ancestors, at least African-Americans, faced far worse than this. Come on now. And we need to find that indomitable spirit that fueled them to rise up out of working in cotton fields and working in a house, you know, which sometimes could be even more dangerous than working in the fields. These multiplicities of oppression and abuse 
that people faced and still were able to see their way through to a new tomorrow. And I think we just have to grab onto that. I'm glad you put it in that context. And I will admit, I feel the despair myself. And for me, I think what I'm feeling isn't that I don't recognize, though, that it hasn't happened before. I think what I'm feeling is because I do know that it's happened before. And I'm saying, oh, my God, are we going back to this again? You know, is this what we have to see again? Um, I remember. Well, you know, here is what we know. We know that history is cyclical. You know, it, it runs in a cycle. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't learn the lessons the first time around. And so we're doomed to repeat them. So it seems. Or sometimes some of us learn the lessons, but those who don't, don't want the lessons and don't care about learning the lessons are able to dominate on that pendulum swing. That may be true. And and I don't think we'll ever find a moment in history where we've all been 100% same page. But I think you're right in that it's very powerful and somewhat disheartening when you have someone who has such a strong platform, you know, as the, the most senior position in our country. And at the same time, we've had oppositions to that. When Lyndon Johnson was in power, you know, he had to make a very clear political decision about the Civil Rights Act, right? And he didn't always get the support and he wasn't always on the same page as us. He had to be pushed. And I think we just have to use the power of the people. And I mean that literally, the notion of democracy that people will rise up and say enough. Today on the Janice Adams Show, more with our guest, Irma McLaurin, after the break. We're back on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Irma McLaurin, former president of Shaw University, chief diversity officer at Teach for America, and program officer for the Ford Foundation. She heads her own management consulting firm, McLaurin Solutions. Speaking before the break, Irma spoke of the civil rights era as a model for today, the power of the people to rise up and say, enough. In her personal life and how her personal life has informed her professional life, I asked, so who taught you to rise up and say enough? You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, there is a concept called locus of control. I can't say that there was one person. I have always had a sense of self. Uh, in in African-American culture, we talk about people who have who are born with old souls, meaning that they have a sensibility that seems to suggest a wisdom beyond their years. And so I was one of those people. Um, and, And so I always had this sense that I would do more, even though I had no models in front of me. My father had a second grade education. He dropped out of school and actually helped paved the way for his siblings. He had about eight or nine siblings to go on to school. I didn't learn that until I read, was reading his obituary that one of his sisters had written. Mm. Uh, But I do have a sense of him. He used to say to me, um, I call in the expert and I watch what they do. 
and then I never have to call them again. And while we were not close, I do believe that I kind of internalized that idea because I'm someone who will watch what people do and learn from that. And then I can go on and the next time around, I'm able to do it. So I've taken that from them. I think I was encouraged by my mother who dropped out of high school. And then even though it wasn't always convenient, she, she was determined she went back to night school and we actually graduated in the same year. She from night school, myself from high school. Oh, how wonderful. Though there are models around me and one of the things that happened, and I think all of us have this kind of centering is that there was a moment when I was going to junior high in which the, the regular junior high school was overcrowded. So they opened up an elementary school in our community and all of those of us who lived in that area needed to go there. It was very interesting because it was a school where they had a black principal, which was highly unusual at that moment in Chicago school system. What period Everyone, of time, excuse me, Irma, what period of time are we talking about? This is 19, uh, it's before I went to high school. So it's 1963, 64, okay. it's seventh and eighth grade. It's right before uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy was assassinated. Okay. And so what was powerful about that is that there were only actually two white people in the entire school. That was not the experience that I'd had up to that moment. And we were taught in that school to believe that we were the best, brightest. So for example, I wrote a poem called Spring and Mr. Merriweather, I still remember his name, took that poem and he put it to music. And the next thing you know, we actually wrote a musical that we actually toured that opportunity would not have happened if I had gone to the regular junior high school. But the spirit of that community, I remember Mr. Wojnicki, my science teacher, he actually walked me home from school into the projects, one of the very few white people at that moment, and to help me with my science project. So there was something about those two years in which we built a forceful community. And by the time I left there, to go to high school, I had such a strong sense of myself. When last have you been into a junior high school or high school these days? I actually went into a elementary school when I visited my daughter. She was doing shadow puppetry in one of the schools in uh, Los Angeles. She was living uh, in, um, oh, I forget what the district is, but it was the district where a lot of the uh, gay Castro in the Castro district. And I remember walking in the school so I could see the play and I was struck by how desolate it appeared. They had chains on the doors and I thought, oh my goodness, these are like fifth, sixth graders, you know, who she's working with. This is the environment that they have to come into every day. And it felt so constraining. Pre-prison. and while the school I attended was, was not extravagant, I just didn't have that sense of being pri- imprisoned in school. Well, I, I'm saying that this, the, these shackles through which today's, some, of, some of today's children are being forced to walk in through in order to just go to school feel as though the environment is pre-prison. Absolutely. I- I think what has happened 
is that, and I'm speaking as an anthropologist, we have lost sight of what is the mission of education. And in doing so, we've made schools become the regulators of all kinds of things, social norms. I mean, to, to a large extent, schools are that space in which every citizen of a, of a society goes through. It's the one time when we had those, those 12 years in which we have a com common experience, right? But so much of who we are is also shaped by what happens in our family and homes. And if people are not doing their business, being giving good parental guidance, shaping values at that moment, then teachers, it's gonna be very hard for them to, to, to transform that. They can only do so much because they themselves have limitations. And so I think we need to think about what it is we're asking schools to do and then what are the responsibilities of us as parents or as leaders in the community? There were lots of people who encouraged me. Um, you know, I remember going to the boys club and girls club, you know, keeping us off the streets, out of gangs. You know, there were people committed to this. I was involved in, in the church choir and we used to travel and that gave me exposure. Uh, you know, there were, there were things that really had very little to do with religion so much as helping us navigate all of these extraneous things that were gonna try and pull us on a path that would lead us down a totally different road and one that was not gonna be positive. So I stayed out of gangs. You know, I got through high school without having a child, which was not the norm. Many of my young uh, women who were my age were having children at a very early age. And so all of these things, but it was both a combination of school and the community I remember neighbors that when my mother was working, if they saw us outside, they would come and say, now you know you're not supposed to be here. And so that, that idea, which was appropriative of takes a village really is an African concept. And that was the community that I grew up in where people watched us and monitored us and tried to lead us down a path that was a positive path, even using their own experiences of don't do what I did. You know, you have, you can do more, you can do better. For a moment, let's just pivot that a little. Let's talk to the parents and the professionals whose responsibility it is at those top levels of education to make sure that more children get the kind of education that you had as opposed to the kind of education that too many children today are getting. And I'll just make a quick aside that wearing my historian's hat, what I look at in, in all of this is how interesting it is that we are making these excuses for the inadequacies imposed on African-American children in the name of public education when were it not for African-Americans, this entire country would not have public education. People forget that, that public school education is essentially institutionalized and then carried forward because of the aftermath of needing to educate enslaved people and then saying, well, then it should be available to everyone, when before that we had a system of private schools and tutors and only certain people, usually young males of a certain class, were able to get a decent education. So the ironies of all of that and the fact that 
not knowing it has us tolerating the intolerable <coughs> is where my mind is. So I go back and I ask you, with this contrast that you've made between what you were able to experience and the pre-prison pipeline that too many young children of color today are being forced to experience, what do we do in terms of who manages our educational systems at those top levels? I would say that parents and those of us who have worked in the classroom, either K through 12 or as professors, that we need to be more demanding. We have become so preoccupied with test taking that students come out knowing how to take a test and they don't know anything else. Students no, long, no longer know how to write cursive writing. Students really don't have very much content that they have knowledge of, things that we used to take for granted. And I think we as educators and also as parents need to be more demanding and more discerning about what it is that teachers are doing. And for me, I hear the frustration having worked at Teach for America, one of the largest nonprofit uh, educational nonprofits where its, its mission is to put teachers in the classroom in underserved communities. And what I'm often hearing is the frustration of the teachers that there's so much that they want to do that's creative and there simply isn't time in the way that it's been structured, the educational curriculum is structured, it's devoted to shaping children so they can take tests, whether they actually know how to read, you know, have content knowledge is not as important. They no longer have exposure to music. They no longer have exposure to, you know, even physical fitness and has become a luxury. And so there's a regimentation that has taken place. I think what's interesting is that the people who are making the decisions are not sending their children to public schools. They're sending them to private schools where they can be exposed to the arts, to music, to physical fitness as part of their holistic educational experience. So and we, we're not letting everyone have access to that. So we're having the segregation of casting class. Once yes, again, it is. Okay, yes. once again, it seems lessons that should have been learned that were not learned. I think we have been moving further away from a country of people who really see themselves as citizens in which our mission, our, 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 our goal is to make sure that citizens benefit into this, what, a, what some, some anthropologists, uh, Bella and Bella in Habits of the Heart, called radical individualism. I think we've become more individualistic. And so that moment in time that I grew up in, when John F. Kennedy as president said, as not what your country can do for you, but for what you can do for your country, was this sense that all of us, if we all jumped in, and worked together, we could make this country great. We've lost sight of that. Now it's about what can I do in order to, to promote myself? And so you have parents who their children go to school, how many hours a, 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 a day and, and how many hours a week, and then they have outside classes that they take because they wanna make sure that that child gets into the top schools. And so people, so kids have no time to be creative. Uh, they have no time to think. And so we've created a sort of a drone culture where everybody 
is is working to to excel themselves and they're not worried about other people. And what I find, and this is my other hat that I've worn as an educator, as a professor, I find a tremendous reluctance among students, this is college students and even graduate students to collaborate because they're afraid that if they join in, then that person over there might up them one and get something that they think they should have. And so there's a real resistance, uh, ironically, in people collaborating. And yet what we know is that the best scientific experiments, um, the, the way in which uh, we've solved certain kinds of issues have occurred because of collaboration. So right now, America is at a crossroads. We, we started by talking about that. And of course, it's not the first time. But at the same point, if you're the one who's experiencing it, it is the first time. You wrote a really poignant column, Crisis Management, also the voice of a mother. It was that award-winning column for the National Newspaper Association, the National Black Press Association, Stop Killing Our Sons. A Black Mother Weeps for America. Stop killing our Black sons. They are not insurgents. They are not enemy combatants. They are not hostile enemy forces. They are not terrorists. They are our Black sons. And I beg you, America, to stop killing them in their own backyards, in the streets outside of nightclubs, on the phone talking to their girlfriend, and a few blocks from convenience stores from which they may or may not have stolen cigars. They do not deserve to die for such trivial incidents. Stop it. Stop killing our Black sons. It is true. Some of our young Black sons are misdirected and misguided, to be sure. But doesn't every society have those disaffected youth who may follow the path to crime and violence? Stop killing our Black sons. Do we condemn every white, young, disaffected 21-year-old male because of Columbine, Aurora, Tucson, Fort Hood, and most recently Newtown? No, stop killing our black sons. Lest you forget, not too far in the past, it was policemen who upheld and reinforced segregation and sanctioned lynching. Lest you forget, it was policemen who occupied the highest ranks of the Ku Klux Klan, and it was policemen who turned fire hoses and unleashed dogs on peaceful black civil rights demonstrators. Why should black America trust the police? Their hands are soiled throughout history. Police follow black men around the streets without probable cause because they assume that all black men are up to no good. Policemen even kill their own, a black policeman, for firing a weapon when out of uniform because there is no such thing as a black man with a legitimate reason for having a gun. Police routinely racially profile black men as a group, yet have not developed a profile of the type of young white men most likely to commit mass murder at their schools. Stop killing our black sons. Doing this kind of profiling might require that they look in the mirror and acknowledge that there are a lot of angry white men wearing badges who resent the legislation and changes in the country that they believe have reduced their white privilege and sense of entitlement. 
No amount of police academy training can erase years of pent-up racism, white supremacy thinking, a sense of entitlement to white privilege, and uncontrollable rage that it is a black man who now holds the highest office in the country. Stop killing our black sons. As the mother of a black son, I weep not only for the mother of Michael Brown, I also weep for Trayvon Martin's mother. When will it stop? When will America regain its sanity as a society and stop? Until there are answers, I will my tears fall and mingle with those of the many black mothers here and all over the world who have but one request. Stop killing our black sons. Stop it now. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. Our guest, Irma McLaurin, reading from her award-winning column, A Black Mother Weeps for America. More after the break. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear for the whole round We're back on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Irma McLaurin. Irma, in these last few moments with you, let's talk about something that you are, that is near and dear to your heart, absolutely new and that you are working on now, the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive. You've said that it is a game changer for preserving and showcasing the intellectual and activist contributions of black feminists. What is this archive? It is my legacy. It is probably a culmination of my way of doing service. Um, It was Muhammad Ali who said that service is the rent we pay for living on this earth. And I think that this archive is, is the rent that I'm paying for the opportunities I've had. And its goal, its mission is to preserve the intellectual and activist contributions of black women. And very rarely are black women held up and, and valorized. We are often attacked, critiqued, we're, you know, we're called the angry black woman. And it seems like there's nothing that really projects positive energy around who we are you know, as, 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 as a group, as a group. And so this archive is really a celebration of not just the, the people who have fame and glory, but ordinary people who have been community activists and people are giving me names now of people who've worked very closely in their communities and made contributions and really in some ways sacrificed aspects of their own personal life in order to improve the, the lives of others. I wanna make sure that those contributions don't get lost, that they don't get thrown away like Zora's papers almost did when she died poor. Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston. They were getting ready to burn her paper if someone rescued them. So you could see this, there, there is something called salvage anthropology. And it was about documenting and, and preserving certain certain cultures that when they came in contact to the West, some of their traditions might disappear. 
So I'm sort of on a salvage mission, if you would. I prefer to think about it as a preservation mission, and that is to preserve uh, the, the, the contributions of Black women. And part of that has to do with there, there's a wonderful quote by uh, a Black woman, Scottish Black woman, who uh, was both a, an artist. And one of the things she talks about, she says that, you know, transmitting our stories by word of mouth does not possess archival importance. Survival is visibility. And this is a woman named Maud, Maud Souter, S-U-L-T-E-R. She's an Afro-Scottish Black feminist. Say that line again. Transmitting our stories by word of mouth does not possess archival importance. Survival is visibility. So in other words, even for, for so many of these cultures that have been oral cultures, that is part of the issue in terms of this archival dearth that we're yes. talking about. And, and why, therefore, so let's say you have now people whose papers, whose, and very quickly, for those who don't think in, in this term, when you refer to people's papers, what are you talking about? I'm talking about their correspondence. I'm talking about their notes. I'm talking about when they were writing their speeches, the, the, the notations that they made, you know, how we, we may hear the final speech. So, for example, Martin Luther King's speech that he made, uh, you know, and the Washington Monument. But what we want to understand is his creative genius. What were the things that led up to that? What kind of notations did he have? They're doing the same thing with Kennedy's speeches. We come to realize that he wrote many of those himself and the notations around it. What was he, you know, what was he pondering? So I want to do this. And it's, it's not to in some way say that oral tradition is not good, but it's also protecting that oral tradition so that we can have interviews of people uh, that can then preserve, that they don't get lost. Often activists are folks who are so invested in the action and the doing the work that they don't think about preserving their stuff. And so I see this archive as an opportunity for people to actually for themselves say, well, you know, I actually do have these letters that I wrote to like Fidel Castro or correspondence with him, or I was in, involved with some South African women activists and there's this correspondence I have that really sort of shows how we were creating this global solidarity. We want to be able to preserve that. Mm -hmm. And and metaphorically, what what I think of to to so that people really understand the import of this, it's like when we were talking about advanced degrees in certain areas, women advanced degrees in women's studies, PhDs in women's studies, and there were no PhD programs that offered women's studies, PhDs in black studies, and there were no PhDs that programs that offered PhDs in Black Studies. And so the result of that was that we therefore then couldn't have 
um, master's programs because there were no PhDs to train them. And then people said, well, it's kind of hard to bring it into the public schools if nobody has been trained in, in, in the colleges and universities in the subject area. And so it became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Same thing here with these papers. If you can't study the work of black feminists, the way you can study other people's work, then you really are also cutting off your ability to build a body of scholarship. And in denying that body of scholarship, then people who can essentially do their formal work in it and on and on and on. So it it isn't just a scholarly pursuit. It seems to me a life and a breathing pursuit in when you talk about these papers. Absolutely. And we have to understand history we tell 25 years from now is shaped by the information that's available for those who are writing about it. They may not have been living at that moment. Let's say 50 years from now. So what do they rely upon? They go into archives. And up until this moment, archivists are 99% white. It is a very non-diverse field. And so part of the agenda of the archive is actually we're seeking in our funding to have fellowships where we can actually contribute to diversifying the field by offering fellowships for Black women who are going into library science and using the archive itself as the training ground for them. So it has multiple agendas. It is preservation, but it's also a, a I would call it an intervention, if you will, in, into the field of archiving because archivists have tremendous power decide whose papers get, get preserved. And so if I just sent my papers blindly, they could sit in a box forever. So even though I've made that contribution, if there's no action, if there's not an archivist who says, gee, I really think this is important, my papers would be sitting in a box. So there's an intentionality that is both about preserving the contributions of Black women's activists and scholarly contributions, but there's also an intervention into the field of archiving because they're helping to shape what we come to know as knowledge. And when I listen to you speak, I'm cast back to an earlier part of the conversation when you talked about in schools today how students are not being taught cursive writing. And you say, well, why would you go back to that? Well, because in the information that I hear you talking about, those students who we are saying are educated today will essentially be illiterate in terms of understanding their past because they won't be able to read those papers, whether from black feminists, from other feminists, from scholars, period. They will not be able to read that information. And so it's another way, if we're not careful, of cutting us off from our yes, past. Yes, this is true. And it's it's amazing, but there there have been articles written in which students see cursive and they have foreign language. Yeah, yeah. It almost seems as though if we continue in this way, we'll need another Rosetta Stone in order to tell them what their grandparents, <laughs> the note that their grandparents left on the kitchen table. Exactly. That said, <laughs> Irma, as we, as we close today, is there something that 
you want us to know that we haven't covered in this conversation? Well, I would say that in, in all of what I do, even in my leadership uh, education, in my coaching, my mentoring, at the, uh, at the heart of it is a profound belief in the triumph of the human spirit. And for me, that is most often reflected in my poetry. And so I try and use that as well as a way of telling stories and of preserving things. And the one that comes to mind, someone who has certainly influenced me, um, is a leader, Janetta Cole, Dr. Janetta Cole, who is the president of the Smithsonian, the director of the Smithsonian African Art Museum. And she's getting ready to retire, but she has certainly been someone who has had a profound impact on me. And so there's a poem that I wrote for a, her birthday some years ago that I think uh, sort of captures the way in which all of this comes together for me. For Janetta, for one raised in the smallness of Florida, how did so many come to call you sister? How did so many languages come to shape your name? You whose very life is peace, you whose very heart is love. It is because you stretched out your hands, long brown fingers that curve back to Harriet, back to Sojourner, back to Frederick, to reach forward across words, across seas, to gather up the threads of differences and weave them into a single tapestry that is larger than gender, that is larger than race, that is stronger than language, that is your life. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Dr. Irma McLaurin, scholar, poet, past president of Shaw University, and motivational strategist. For more on today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-Adams.com. Music heard on today's show, Gene McDaniels, Compared to What?, Roberta Flack performing I Told Jesus and Tryin' Times. Nina Simone performing Billy Taylor's I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free and playing now Ooh Child. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, our thanks to our guest and to you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. Ooh child, things look Someday we'll get it together and we'll get it undone Someday when the world is much brighter Someday we'll walk together in a beautiful sun Someday when the world is much lighter